0: And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter eight, verse twenty-one, the second part of twenty-one through chapter nine, verse seven. Somebody might reading verse twenty-one. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. You remember in chapter 8, verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. You know, one of the first things that he does when he comes out of the ark, you would think that it would be to build a house. Instead, no, he builds an altar. He builds an altar to the Lord, and he ends up sacrificing. Verse 20 says there, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And we talked about the offerings. We talked about the offerer. We talked about things that we find here in those words that it says it's clean animals. It's from a particular group or particular categories. And then we also found out that there were requirements upon the animal. You couldn't just pick a sheep. You couldn't just pick a goat or a bull. It had to be blemish-free. It had to be perfect. It had to be impeccable. And then you also remember that we talked about the offerer, that the condition of the heart of the person who's making the offering makes a huge difference. In fact, if you remember, we looked at Micah, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. I'm just going to paraphrase here. Basically, Micah saying, if I was to bring the best offerings, it wouldn't make a difference if my heart's not in it. And if you remember from verse 8, it ends up saying, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. So instead of all those great offerings that he's proposing, should I come to God with this? Should I come to God with that? Should I come to God with this other thing? He says, but God has shown you what is required of you, to do justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And remember we talked a little bit about those elements there, about justice and about mercy and walking humbly with your God. You remember how we took that passage and we recognized that maybe Jesus had that passage in mind when he was talking about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and how you saw the elements of justice and you saw the element of mercy and you saw the element of walking humbly or living humbly before God as being elements within that story, within that parable. So that's kind of where we ended up. We kind of ran out of time. So what I want to do here is kind of recap a little bit and talk about justice, mercy, and humility. And these are things that we bring as sacrifices to God. So when we come to sacrifice before God, this is what's required of us. This is what Micah would say would be required of us. That we should do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Outward expressions of an inward devotion. Would you agree with me that that's that's where those come from? Another way that you could say it is that perhaps everything from within us should be consistent with the claims that we're Christians. That everything within us should be areas of devotion that we would give to God. That maybe something like Mark chapter 12, verse 30, where it says we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. That those are from within us. All right? So we should be bringing to God a sacrifice of everything that is within us. Another thing that we can look at now, Hebrews 13, 5. You don't have to turn there. We're going to have a lot of passages today. All right, maybe I should start writing. Uh, Mark 12, 30 was one of the passages I just mentioned. That was loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Micah 6, (laughs) verses 6 through 8. That's uh, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Here in Hebrews 13, 15. Hebrews 13, 15 ends up saying that we bring this as a sacrifice to God. It says, therefore, by him... Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So one of the other things that we bring to God is the fruit of our lips, that we bring praise to God. That's the sacrifice that we make to God. So in our relationship, as Christians, what does it look like to bring sacrifices to God? We bring the sacrifices of our lips. We bring thanksgiving to God. In my home, I'll be perfectly upfront with you. We're having a hard time instilling this in our children. We're finding out that people aren't born naturally thankful. (laughs) We're finding out that people are born, and unless you instill that with them and and try to train that in them every day, they don't naturally come out with just thankfulness. So we're trying to teach in our children to be thankful. And every time I have these instances of different sorts with my kids, I can't help but think that maybe that's something of a reflection of our relationship with God. That maybe in our relationship with God, we don't naturally come to God with thanksgiving. Oh, we're good at complaining. <laughs> oh, we're good at wishing for something other than the situation we have right here and right now. Maybe we ought to be living a little more thankfully. Maybe every time I correct my kids, ooh, I feel the sting of God saying, oh, that's what I'm working on you on too, right? <laughs> that's going on in your life too. And I go, oh, okay noted, you know, (laughs) and it's something that he's trying to train us, just as I would be trying to train my kids, okay? Another one, Philippians 4.18, I love Philippians, it's probably my favorite book in the entire book, close run up would be Deuteronomy, but Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 4.18, somebody might read that verse, remember that sweet smelling aroma in the passage that we're reading, keep that in your mind as somebody reads Philippians 4.18,
1: indeed I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well pleasing to God.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Bianca. So here Paul is saying that the sacrifice, he's mentioning a sweet-smelling aroma. He is making a correlation between the sacrifices that they're familiar with from their history. And he's saying that same sweet-smelling aroma comes along when we would offer up our resources. In his situation, he's thankful for resources that were given on his behalf to meet needs, okay? And he's saying that when we bring, as Christians, when we bring our resources to God in furthering God's kingdom, that's a sweet smelling aroma. How do we sacrifice to God then? By living justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. We give the thanksgiving of our lips, the, the, the praise of our lips, and we bring of our resources. Do you see this is getting more and more encompassing? This is a big deal. How about this one? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Some of you might even have this memorized. If you don't, this is a great two-verse passage to memorize. Somebody might reading verses 12, 1 and 2, talking about sacrifices, what we bring as sacrifices to God.
1: I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Fully acceptable of the God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Mike. What is the sacrifice we bring to God according to this passage? Our bodies. Our bodies. So let's, let's write a few of these here. So according to this passage, we bring our bodies. According to the previous passage that we just looked at, it's our resources. According to the passage before that, It's our thanks. And then we looked at it originally, it's our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, everything within us, everything from our lips, everything that has to do with our devotion, All right, everything that has to do with taking our wallet out or opening our purse, everything that has to do with our body. If those things weren't enough, then it includes our body too, right? (laughs) I mean, can you say all of this would be our entirety? our entirety. We're to love God with our entirety. We're to sacrifice to God our entirety. Remember what we talked about with burnt offerings? It was completely devoted to God. When it was a burnt offering, it was all burnt. There wasn't any that was held back. It was all put on the altar. It was all given over. It was all for God. Nothing held back. We are to be all devoted to God in our devotion. Everything within us, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our lips, what comes out of our lips, our resources, what we do with those things that God has blessed us with. Are they ours? No, they're not ours. They're his. (laughs) Everything we have is from him. They're all his. Our bodies, our own bodies, everything. That's the sacrifice we bring to God. You man, there are days when that works for me, and I feel like, yeah, today I'm fully devoted to God. Then I feel like there's other days when that sacrifice gets up off the altar and goes, Man, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and we go and do our own thing, right? We're to be fully devoted to God. Not to say there won't be setbacks. There will be. But the ideal is to be fully devoted to God. I want to look at one other thing regarding the sacrificial system. Go to First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5.7. Somebody mind reading that? Because here's what I would say. This is all a picture. This is all the shadows. The substance is what we're about to see. What is the substance? First Corinthians five seven.
1: Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed.
0: Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. This is a concept that I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess, probably everybody in this room has run across before, but it bears repeating, and maybe there's somebody that hasn't heard it before. It's this idea that the whole sacrificial system. It points to Jesus. It points to Yeshua as the perfect sacrifice. All right? So here we have a verse that talks about him as being our Christ. Our Passover was sacrificed for us. Turn to Ephesians. You're in 1 Corinthians. Go to the right. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians five two. what does it say over there? Remember that sweet-smelling aroma we've been talking about in the passage we're familiar with? The one that we're in Genesis? What does it say here in Ephesians 5.2? It says, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us. given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to god for its sweet smelling aroma excellent good job for a sweet smelling aroma remember what we talked about when we're talking about that sweet smelling aroma when it's over in the passage that has to do with noah it means that the offering was acceptable and it means the offerer was acceptable when god finds that the offering of christ is acceptable it's a sweet smelling aroma it indicates for us that god accepted the offering of christ on our behalf did you realize that Christ is both the offering and the offerer? He's the offering. He's the lamb. He's also the offerer. He willingly gives himself up. Turn to another passage here. First Peter. Keep going to the right in your New Testament. Moving closer to the back now. First Peter 1.19. Remember, we talked about you couldn't just pick any old sheep. You couldn't just pick any old goat. You couldn't just pick any old bull. What does it say? You had to pick something that was impeccable. First Peter 1.19. Somebody mind reading that.
1: But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb,
0: without blemish or spot. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. So here we have the assurance that not only was he our sacrifice, he met the requirements of being blemish-free. He met the requirements of being without a spot. And now, Hebrews, now you turn left, all right? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. I want you to think now the big picture, the sacrificial system. Why did we need the sacrificial system then? I mean, why did we need it if Christ was just going to come and and, and take care of it all? Why would you even have it? Part of your answer is going to be here in Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 1 through 7, it starts out this way. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. So he's basically saying those sacrifices in the sacrificial system, those things never could actually make the person who was offering it perfect, much less the people, all right, on behalf of the people. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, if they were effective, you wouldn't need to keep offering them. But they did. They continually offer them. For the worshipers, once purged, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So when the people brought their sacrifices, imagine yourself now. You're the one bringing the sacrifice. You're confronted with your own sin when you bring the sacrifice for your sin. Right? Every time this animal, this innocent animal, this blemish-free animal, this perfect animal, the best that you have to offer ends up going from living to dead, it's a reminder that that's in your place. That that's in your place. You're the one that deserves to die there. But the animal's dying on your behalf. All right, moving on. Verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, speaking of Jesus, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. So the sacrificial system served this, to remind people of their need for a Savior. It reminds people of their sins, that they're destitute. And there needs to be a solution. Where can we find a solution? And does the blood of bulls and goats satisfy their sins, take away their sins? It doesn't. It does doesn't so what does it do imagine a credit card bill you have a big credit card bill you get the statement in the mail and it says that you owe a lot of money but it says we will be content to take from you a small amount right the minimum monthly payment right does the minimum monthly payment if you pay that off how long is it going to be before that debt is paid off it's not going to get paid off okay (laughs) you got a big bill and you're paying the minimum monthly payment you're not making payments to the big amount all right that's just for them to postpone the inevitable, Mm -hmm. which is going to be it's going to cost you everything you got (laughs) what did the sacrificial system do? it was like a minimum payment deferring the inevitable but it never went against the debt, do you see what I'm saying? do you see the correlation? it's an imperfect correlation, but I'm trying to say those sacrifices never took care of their sins it deferred the punishment of those sins until the full payment could be made It never could be made by you and me. We could never pay it. The full payment was paid by Christ. Mm -hmm. The full payment was paid by Jesus. It deferred payments until Jesus came and satisfied the debt. And the next statement says, paid in full. Oh, to tell us that. It is done. (laughs) You know what's weird, though? We still have the credit card. And we still make charges. And the bills still show up paid in full. That freaks me out, because that's more grace than I would show to my kids, Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a grace of God given to me, that my human nature would say, look, I paid your bill off, but from now on it's your responsibility. That's my human nature, that's the way I would treat my kids. God has a different relationship with us, and it's scary how much grace there is, where God says, I took care of the big bill, and I'm going to take care of the following bills. Oh, that's startling. That's more grace than I'm capable of fathoming, that I'm really capable of understanding. That's a lot of grace. Moving on from now. Back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 8. By the way, just so I can be extra clear, um, Paul says in Romans, then should I just keep on going on sending? Hey, I got a credit card. Now I can just rack up the charges. He's got it all. No, 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 no. That's not how we should be living. When we're devoted to God with our entirety, that's not the way we live. Okay, just so I'm clear, just so we're all clear on that. All right, moving on then, chapter 8. And the Lord smelled, I'm sorry, verse 21. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Does that sound familiar? Turn to chapter 6, verse 5. What does chapter 6, verse 5 say?
1: Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually
0: Good job thank you Ron so the second half of that verse there the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually that was the condition of mankind before the flood. so God's going to take care of that condition of man right is that is that what it says move here to chapter 8 then verse 21 and this is after the flood. And what does God say about the condition of man's heart? Hey, it's unchanged. The flood didn't change the condition of man's heart. He was evil before and he's evil after. And God's acknowledging it before they even had babies. He knows already that the condition of the heart has been unchanged. So was the flood a failure? Did God intend to change the condition of man's heart? and went, oh, rats, you know, my, my forethought is only so far, you know, as if the flood happens and he goes, oh, man, I didn't realize it. I can only see a couple years out and, and the condition of man's heart is still evil and I wish I would have known that before I flooded the world. No, that's not the situation at all. God sees the beginning from the end. He knows everything that's going to happen in between. And he, he knows before the flood happens that the condition of man's heart is unchanged. What did he do with the flood? He addressed a worldwide wickedness problem, all right? We've got a lot of wickedness. We're going to wipe it clean and start afresh. But man's hearts are unchanged. The Imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. In in verse 21 then. Verse 22. While the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat and winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. Here another picture of God's grace extended to us. He's giving grace in the form of these things right here that we see in verse 22. That there's seed time and harvest. That there's seasons. All right? There's cold and heat, there's winter and summer, there's day and night. These things are a given. God gives it to us. It's never going to always be winter. It's never going to be always hot summer. I know it feels <laughs> that way in California, but you know what I mean. It's never going to be stuck. God has this cycle, this rhythm that's built in. You don't have to sacrifice your firstborn child for rain. Okay? Okay? God says, I'm going to take care of it. You don't have to make sacrifices to your pagan deity or to your false god in hoping for crops. God says, I've got these cycles in the design of what I'm going to be doing. All right? So this idea of Mother Nature, Mother Earth, that has no place in the Bible. All right? I have some relatives up in Northern California. There's a retreat center that's near their house. And it it was interesting. I drove by this retreat center and it's called the earth goddess retreat center <laughs> the earth goddess retreat center i can't help but go that is so far off base <laughs> you know that is and then i end up running across this event the goddess festival coming up let me just read you some of the uh, attractions that they gonna... Join us for a blissful weekend filled with magic, and sisterhood, and deep connection to the rhythms of earth. Don't you just want to puke? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Once again, we gather together in the coastal redwoods of California among the enchanted energies of Mother Nature. I'm sorry, there's no Mother Nature. That is in contrast to what the Bible would teach. All right? There's no Mother Nature. <laughs> all right. But apparently they're going to spend $300 a person to go to this. For three days, we lived together in this sacred setting, partaking of powerful workshops, rituals, singing, drumming, dancing, and dynamic vitality of female focused, intentional community. So, apparently, I can't go. Um, (laughs) Guided by world renowned priestesses and leaders. Okay, I've read enough. All right. This whole idea of mother nature and goddess mother and uh, rub it off, rub it off. Yeah. Shake it off. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs>
0: but when I read these words here in verse twenty two, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. And I can't help but think of the greatest thy faithfulness, you know that hymn? Oh, that old yeah. hymn in, in verse two. It says Summer and Winter. And springtime and harvest. Do you hear the similarity of words? Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. I can't help but think of that song every time I run across that verse. The words are just so similar there. All right, moving on. By the way, it doesn't say, when you read these verses, it doesn't say that the earth will never be destroyed again. Because you might be thinking, wait a minute. Doesn't it say that the earth is going to be destroyed again? Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. so would that be in violation of what we got here? No, not necessarily. Here's why. Because if you look at the language, how does verse 22 start? It says, while the earth remains. God's not going to destroy the earth again as long as these cycles continue. But there will come a day when the cycles will cease and the earth will be destroyed again, not by a flood, but by fire. And if you read the description of what that looks like in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4-13... through 13, you find out that it involves the day of the Lord which involves signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars and you find out that the seed time and harvest is compromised because the signs that would show you that seed time and harvest are still around, those are all compromised in the day of the Lord the day of the Lord coming upon the destruction of the earth and you've got it by fire Okay, so saying, God's saying basically, I'm going to set this system up where you have this cycle of seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night and those things shall not cease And you don't have to worry about the earth being destroyed either as long as those things are in place. But there's coming a day when both will cease at the same time. When those will cease, then you also have the day of the Lord and you have the destruction of the earth by fire and a new heavens and new earth as we find in the end of the book of Revelation. Obviously a lot of material for another study. All right? (laughs) But I commend that to you for for further study. Chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Is this the first time we've seen this one? Be fruitful and No, it's come up before. Chapter 1, verse 28 ends up having one of the places that we saw that. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. However, there is a difference. When you look at 128 and 9-1, what's the difference? Does anybody see the difference? Subdue it. Good. Subdue and rule or have dominion. They are not in 9-1. What are they replaced with in 9-1? It actually shows up in verse 2. Fear and dread so the relationship that mankind had with the animal kingdom in 1.28 was that mankind had to subdue and rule over it was almost like there was a cooperative, maybe a a somewhat cooperative relationship between mankind and the animal kingdom with man being the head of, and here you find a different situation that if there was any cooperation that might be implied in chapter 1.28 in chapter 1 verse 28, that's not the case anymore. The animals are not involved in being cooperative anymore, (laughs) that there's a fear and dread, okay, that there's a fear and dread. Verse 2, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. I did read in some of the commentators that they said that if you remember from the curse on the ground, Right? Chapter 3, verse 17, when the ground was cursed. When Adam and Eve decided to sin, and we're all paying the price for it. And remember how it was that they were to tend the garden before, but then it was like, it's going to be hard for you to get food from the ground anymore. Right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that one of the things that we're going to see in this area is that God opens up the opportunity. He blesses the opportunity for them to be able to partake and eat of meat. Okay? Which we didn't see prior to this. And so some of the commentators have this argument whether or not they were allowed to eat meat before. It doesn't say that they were. But some would say, well, it doesn't say that they were <laughs> right? But one of the things that they point out is that perhaps because the earth was unwilling to produce food in the form of plants, you know, without a lot of hard work, that you had among you in your society lazy people who would rather take by violence the food that you've been tilling the ground for. And that maybe some of the violence that was in the situation prior to the flood and that gave rise to the flood was a situation where people were willing to engage in violence and kill one another mm-hmm. rather than work for food. Mm-hmm. Can we see that <laughs> possibly <laughs> being a situation that might happen nowadays? I mean, if you think about it, food's pretty easy to get right now, pretty easy to get. But what happens? What happened We live in California. What happens if there's an earthquake? And it's now your grocery store can't get the trucks to give food to the grocery store for you to just go and you know pay three dollars for your loaf of bread and four dollars for your gallon of milk and people start to get hungry. Could you imagine maybe a scenario where it might lead to some violence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could easily happen. If people are starving and their choice is either starve to death or kill somebody for their food, you might have a violent society. (laughs) You might get to the point where there's violence. And so just reading that, it makes me think, okay, maybe that was a scenario. But that's reading a lot more into the text than we really have. But it's a possibility. Notice that the subduing rule gives way to fear and dread. Uh, one of these commentators along those lines says, after the fall of the ground would not be cooperative, so that food was not as easily obtainable. Likewise, here we find that animals will not be cooperative, with the result that obtaining food will continue to be a challenge. <laughs> Just when God gives you the blessing that you can eat meat, there it goes running into the bushes and you got to hunt it down. <laughs> Rats. <laughs> Chapter 9, verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Verse 4, this uh, gives rise to what we'll see later on as, as you move through the through the Torah, through Leviticus especially, that you're to drain the blood out, all right? So the provision is, if you're going to eat meat, if you're going to eat animals, that A, it needs to be living before you start. You just don't find the carcass of the car that you know <laughs> just hit the deer and is lying on the side of the road, and you go and drag it home and eat from that. That's not the idea. But also, of the animals that you are going to eat, make sure it's dead once you kill it, all right? That you're preparing to eat it, you drain its blood, all right? This ends up becoming a lot bigger of an issue than you might expect, the idea of blood. We hear that and we go, oh, gross, blood, ooh. You know, (laughs) that's yucky. All right. That's what my little girls would say. That's yucky. But you end up finding that the blood becomes a big deal. Not just here, but you find it as you move through the Torah, as you move through Leviticus especially, that the blood becomes a big deal. And in fact, Jesus didn't need to talk about it, but he ends up talking about blood a lot. Blood becomes this almost mystical element as you move through the Bible. In this area right here, this is foreshadowing what we would have later. If you were to bring a sacrifice, you were to drain the blood. The idea was that the blood was a life force. In fact, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 23 through 25. Deuteronomy 12,
1: 23 through 25. Somebody might read that. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And
0: this is just one passage of many that talk about draining the blood, pouring the blood out. Some of the commentators said that basically this provided an opportunity for the person who's about to partake in the food that God has sanctioned that they can partake in. It provides them the opportunity to be thankful. All right, that pouring out something was a way of devoting it to God. Because if you're in a desert and somebody gives you a canteen of water, it does you good if you drink it. Who does it do good if you pour it into the sand and it sinks in the sand? Nobody. But it, so it was a way to devote something to God. You pour out the blood, it does nobody any good. Not that you want blood for anything anyway. But you pour out the blood, you're devoting it to God. You're giving it over to God. And you're also, because it's a lifeblood, you're returning to God the life that he gave to that animal that he now sanctions you to be eating from. Moving on with that idea in mind then, go to Leviticus. Leviticus is left of Deuteronomy, all right? Leviticus is the third of the five books. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. Somebody mind reading that.
1: For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh, or the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Bianca. Now turn to your New Testament. Matthew. Turn to Matthew 26. Again, we read that, and we in our Western modern thinking go, that really seems to be an overemphasis on blood. Why do we need that? It might be the tendency that we would look at, and I go, really, really, can we move on to a different topic? Do we have to be focusing on the blood so much? Turn to Matthew 26, verses 27, 28, and 29. Somebody mind reading this?
1: And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is
0: my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. So what's the background of this, of this passage? What's going on? What's the picture? What's the background story? Passover. Passover. It's the Last Supper. It's the final meal that Jesus has with his disciples. He's going to be crucified the next day. He's going to be our lamb, our sacrifice the next day. He's giving them a word picture as he's, is he really drinking blood? Do you suppose he's really... No, he's not. (laughs) Okay, he's not. But the words make it sound like, Whoa, what? Huh? What are you doing? It conjures up in their minds, There's something weird going on, And now they're going to probably be paying more attention Because of the illustration that he's using. Turn to John, chapter 6, verses 52 through 56. If you didn't think he was using the word blood As many times as you thought he maybe needed to In those short little passages... This one might make up for it. Chapter 6, verses
1: 52 through 56. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So there we have a whole lot of talk about blood and flesh. You know what? This is highly offensive to this crowd. They hear these words, and they're like, this guy is (laughs) whacked. I mean, he's talking like this? Write him off right now. It's probably what they're thinking. They're going, this guy is crazy because he's talking about blood and flesh. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Come on now. Who talks like this? He's not literally saying, drink my blood. He's not literally saying, eat my flesh. What he is saying is, I'm the sacrifice. <laughs> I am the sacrifice. My blood is poured out to God, to the Father. My flesh is given on behalf of the people who need forgiveness of their sins. That's everybody. We need it all. Okay, turn to us. Romans 5.8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 5.8. What does it say there?
1: But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.
0: While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to be our sacrifice. Another shadow of Jesus in the Old Testament with the blood of the sacrifice being poured out, with the blood of every creature that you slit the neck of because you're going to eat. And as the blood's poured out, you have a time to contemplate and think, thank you God for providing for me sustenance that I need turn to one more passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Okay, we don't have time. That's the communion Sorry. service. <laughs> Sorry. All right, we're going to wrap this up. So the blood ends up becoming this picture, this foreshadow of Jesus, the most important blood that was ever shed, his blood on the cross for us. His blood. Do we need an overemphasis on the blood? Only if it points to something. When we look at it everywhere outside of Jesus, you go, that's weird. There's too much of it. I don't understand what it's about. But when you put Jesus in the equation and you go, oh, he shed his blood for me. Then you go, now I see what it was all pointing to. Now I see why there was so much talk about it. Because it was all pointing to him. When we talked about that passage that we were in Hebrews, when we looked at earlier, in Hebrews about the sacrificial system, when it says, the volume of the book is written about me. It's everything you find is testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that He came to be our sacrifice in our place, dying for us so that we don't have to perish. Alright, we, we gotta end there. Alright. Wow. <laughs> we'll go ahead and close the prayer there. <laughs> oh, there was more. Okay, we didn't get all the way where we were gonna go, but we'll just pick up where we left off with next time in verse five. Alright, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we see shadows of Christ in the earliest chapters of the first book of the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that this is going to be a pattern for us. That when we're going through your word, we see your son show up. We thank you, God, that all those arrows pointing to Jesus show us the way. We thank you, God, that he came and satisfied a debt we could never pay. That he came and died in our place He fulfilled the picture of the sacrificial system, where the blood of bulls and goats poured out over millennia and never was able to effectually see our sins be forgiven, just postponing the inevitable that was accruing and growing until you sent your Son, until Jesus died for us on the cross, shedding his own blood, shouting out, It is finished, and paid our debt in full. We thank you, Lord. That kind of grace we can only barely begin to understand. Help us, Lord, to live gratefully. Help us to live thankful lives. Help us, Lord, to share this good news. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 All right. have a great